Hi, this is Nasheet Waits, and you're listening to Jazz Life. Thank you. 
That was McCoy Tyner's Parasina, featuring the great Freddie Waits on drums off the Expansions album on Blue Note. You're listening to Jazz Life. I'm your host, Shannon J. Effinger. Coming up on today's show, I sit down with drummer Nasheed Waits. Born right here in New York City, he's the son of the great jazz drummer, Freddie Waits. We chart his life right here in the city, growing up alongside drummer Eric McPherson and tenor saxophonist Abraham Burton. Since then, he's gone on to have a prominent sideman career for artists like Andrew Hill, Antonio Hart, and as an original member of Jason Moran's trio, Bandwagon. Now here's my one-on-one conversation with Nasheed Waits, only on Jazz Life. So on today's Jazz Life, I have the pleasure, the honor to sit down with a fellow New York native, the great drummer Nasheed Waits. How you doing today, Nasheed? I'm doing well. I didn't know you were a native yes, of New York. Yep, born and raised in Brooklyn. <laughs> no, I just I just took a, a Uber over here, and the brother was talking about that too. He was like, "Yo, we're a rare breed." Shoot, you, you ain't lying. We're a rare breed. Yeah, <laughs> certainly. So before we chart your New York experience, um, so my first time hearing you live was actually at the Detroit. Jazz Fest this past summer. Oh, just recently. Okay. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, I'm ashamed, but it was it was so great to not only catch you with Jason Moran and Bandwagon, which we'll talk about later on, but particularly for the Drummers Clinic, a panel of these incredible Detroit legends, including. Lewis Hayes, you talk about that. Well, first of all, what are your specific roots in Detroit? Well, my grandmother was a part of that great migration mm-hmm. of of black folks that um, came up north from the south okay. to uh, you know mm-hmm. kind of like that change from the agricultural right. to the to the industry right. so uh, she was the oldest of 12 she was the first one to kind of uh, matriculate up her her my great grandparents were you know had a farm and yeah. You know, I had to, you know, like most black folks mm-hmm. did, you know, farm yeah. and pigs and sharecropping. Sharecropping, a little moonshine on the side, everything, <laughs> you know, uh, great grandfather did. So uh, she came up, and um, so her and her uh, sisters got into the. Um, Got into the, uh, you know, nursing or nutrition. She was like a nutritionist for the for the hospital, mm-hmm. and then most of the men got into the audio industry. Mm-hmm. So they they migrated from uh, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So there was like Walnut Grove, Jackson, yeah. Mississippi, and then came up to okay. to Detroit and Chicago, and that was that was that family's trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, great migration, just like just like a lot of black folks and whatnot. You know, some people from New York City, like a lot of folks from New York City. Yeah. They came from North Carolina. So mm-hmm. my mother, her people came from North Carolina. Mm-hmm. My father, though, they came up to Detroit. So they they settled in Detroit, and that's that's where they call home. She's, wow. still, she's alive. Now, my grandmother is about to be 99. Oh, my God. Yeah, wow. and she still lives in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of, you know, a large contingent of my family still lives there. Yeah, it was like the whole front row of at Bandwagon was like your, your yeah. family. Yeah, and that <laughs> was just a small sector. They're, they're like <laughs> extremely deep. Extremely wow. deep. So, um, yeah. So Detroit's like second, second home okay. for me. So, well, let's talk about the first home mm-hmm. growing up in New York City. Can you tell us about that experience. Uh, you know, in- incredible, really. Mm-hmm. You know, I took it. You take those kind of things for granted. You really don't control where you, where you you have no control mm-hmm. over that. But uh, 
you know when you travel as 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 much as as uh, a lot of us do in um this profession you you uh you appreciate your your upbringing and, and it also makes you it not only your upbringing it also just makes you appreciate the city mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. it's an amazing city so diverse yeah. that that's probably the the most um not not even the most but that's one of the the uh the aspects of the of the uh of the city that that really prepares you to interact with people from all over the world yeah. because you're interacting with people from all over the world mm-hmm. every time you get on the subway you know <laughs> you hear about 10 or 12 different languages yeah. in the car yeah. and that's that's amazing because you're gonna uh have to interact and have to you know come to agreements and right. and and understandings with people from these different cultures mm-hmm. so you you automatically start you developing those skills mm-hmm. before you even step out step out of the city wow at what point in your life, at what time in your life did music become your focus? Was it largely because of your dad, who we'll also talk about in a second? Or? Yeah, it definitely was, was because of him. Um, but I was uh, I was attracted to it as, as a child because it was always in the house. Yeah. And, you know, my mother, even though she wasn't a musician, she listened to a lot of music and they were very supportive. Yeah. Of me, you know, playing whatever I played, you know, until I got my first drum set. Yeah. <laughs> my grandmother gave me my first drum oh, set. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that was, you know, it was a pretty very organic kind of transition into playing the music. And I did that up until, you know, junior high school. Yeah. I went away to school for high school. Okay. Where'd you go I went school? to um, school in uh, Bucks County. Uh, and there wasn't a music program. There was a music program. It was just an orchestra. Oh. It wasn't geared towards. I don't think they were giving any percussion lessons, right. or they. So it, it wasn't something that was that interesting for me. You okay. know, fourteen, fifteen years mm-hmm. old. You want to have some type of connection to yeah. not even what's popular, but you just want to be challenged and mm-hmm. be interested in what was happening. And it was all classical. I and I don't even think they were teaching classical percussion. So mm-hmm. I didn't do that in high school I you know I did some other stuff and then I went to college at Morehouse mm-hmm. um, college for the first couple of years and I wasn't studying music there either okay. yeah that was like uh, history and psychology did you have other plans for your life at that point or? I mean when you're 18 years old what, 19 what kind of plans do you have <laughs> really I was just trying to choose a major that I was interested in and I declared psychology because they encourage you to declare something when Mm -hmm. you get there but I took probably more courses in history I was about to change my major to history but then uh, my father passed away in uh, 90 89 late 89 so I moved back to New York and I had a you know a little while of trying to search and find myself and then the music kind of found me in, in a way. You know, all my good friends were still um, playing. In fact, they went on to, you know, LaGuardia High School. And then they went on to, uh, my good friends, they went on to study up at Hart School of Music with yeah. Jackie yep. McLean. Mm-hmm. So Eric McPherson drums and Abraham Burton. And then I was, uh, Antoine Roney was a really uh, important part of my uh, <clears throat> early, early development and uh, and he spent some time up up there at Hart as well, but but he lived here in New York, still does. Mm-hmm. He has an amazing son, yeah. Ko- Kojo, yeah, and whatnot. But guy. he but Antoine is is amazing. He has a, mm-hmm. a wealth of knowledge. Him and his brother, I learned so much fr- from them. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, still do. Uh, so that was kind of like the the beginning, yeah. the beginning for me. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of kind of full circle. You know, I was around it, played right. it like in, yeah. you know junior high school, but I wasn't really reading any music or anything like yeah. that. I was just coming off of what I I didn't realize how how important that was either. It was just feeling, right. you know, playing off of what you felt yeah. and who you were around and yeah. those people were uh, incredibly important you know people like Max Roach mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. he was like a, a friend and great uh, mentor to my father and he became an amazing yep. mentor to, to me as well you know Michael Carvin I studied with him he pretty much taught me for, for free you know for you know five or six years you know so it, you know running across people like that and having people like that take you under their wing and mm-hmm. And uh, enable you to just be around them, yeah. imparting lessons to you. You know, not only verbally, but just through actually seeing them mm-hmm. and, and how they carried themselves. Mm-hmm. That's that's the that's the uh, that's that 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 is that is those are the people that inform me. So yeah, having that tangible connection is is so important, and um, having a father who's who's left such an indelible mark in this music, the great Freddie Waits. You could talk about his his impact on on this music and on your life specifically as a musician. You know, he was a, a, amazing in in the way that he imparted his lessons to me. It was a, a lot of it was very. He was the type of father who was. He was strict and his presence was was there, but it wasn't like, you know, he was whipping ass every day or anything like that. You know, it was more like the fear of of the ass whipping went went a long way. Yeah, all my mom had to do was give a look. Yeah, yeah. It was it wasn't too much. You know, I was I was I was afraid enough not to do too much. And you know, but you know, living in New York City, you boys, you know, you you do you you do your thing, you know, but fortunately I didn't get caught up in anything too crazy as far as the music was concerned though he was he kind of he had a hands-on hand-off approach he i i always expressed an interest so it was never like everything that i think i was given in terms of like you know drums and things of that nature or lessons was only given when i i asked for it i earned it so i spent a lot of time as a child you know just playing the instrument yeah. you know playing along to records and you know going to his concerts and I remember be, you know being like the the person who held the hi-hat in place on the stage like you know that was my function <laughs> so I, w- I would be on the bandstand you know at times when he was when he was playing gigs and, and you know so it was it was it was very natural for me that environment mm-hmm. of the music so I was around and I it, you know, generally a lot of a lot of kids want to be like their fathers, especially you know then you know men want to be you know, yeah. and I uh, I wanted to emulate him you know, to a large degree. It sounded like it, it seemed like he was having so much fun yeah. first of all, yeah. and I gravitated to it, mm-hmm. and he observed that and and but he was really sensitive in the fact that like he didn't stage father me you know and and become overbearing. Mm-hmm. 
or anything like that. It was like if you want to play, then go ahead and play, you know. And you have the now, now it's now you have to earn your right to do certain things. It wasn't like okay, we're just gonna lavish you with this and this and that. It was like, like I said, my grandmother gave me my first set of drums. So it was like, you know, and then after that, after I like completely obliterated the drums, you know, beat the heads until I had taped them over it, taped them, oh taped them. <laughs> you know, it was one of those. Oh, it was one of those kid sets that the, the heads, like once you broke the head, that was it. <laughs> it wasn't like now <laughs> where no you can drum. actually change the lungs or exactly. <laughs> this was like the old school set where you know once I wore that one out, then he was like, okay, you have earned another set of drums, and he let me use one of his old sets. Oh, wow on his old Gretsch round badge sets and then you know he would teach me certain coordination things and inform me about the music but there was always a, a, a very um, there was a there was a level of respect that you had to have for the music and for the people who made it possible for you to do what you were doing and he he let me understand that early mm. you know I can remember playing a concert like for like this is elementary school. And I was joking around and, and playing. You know, we were up on stage, so I was, you know, children. I was, you know, horse playing. And he, after the concert, you know, I could tell he was, he was upset. And he, you know, he pulled me to the side and he said, you know, you can't, he said, don't, don't ever disrespect the instrument like that or don't disrespect the music like right. that yeah. and even as like a nine ten year old mm -hmm. I, I could understand the gravity with which he was yeah. imparting his message that there was a certain level of respect that you had to have if you were going to if if, if he was going to allow me to to represent yeah the family right. on the yeah. instrument that I had to I was like oh okay there's mm -hmm. a there's a, um, as Andrew Hill would say, the pantheon and whatnot, right, of these people <laughs> yeah. who have who have earned the right yeah. to be there, and and for you to, you know, it's not just you, you can play the instrument or you you know, and also you have a good time and everything, but there's also a a, a certain respect that you have to have for the instrument and for the people. You know, it became a cultural yeah. uh, phenomenon as well. It was like there's there's a culture that's attached to this. This is a part of who you are. You need to represent yourself. And I was like, oh, okay. So it started becoming clear then, even as a child, that if you want to do this, that you're not only representing yourself, but you're representing your family, and you're representing the other people who came before you. And, you know, it's like a, a lineage, this, this whole lineage yeah. of, of black Americans, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and, and before that. So yeah. I was like, that whole ancestry yeah. was... Uh, was be and it, it, it can be heavy, mm -hmm. but it's like... To a large degree, you need to acknowledge that in order to, to for me at least, in order to, to really understand the, uh, you know, the importance of, of what it is that, that you're doing. It's, mm -hmm. it's not only about the, uh, it's not just uh, performing mm -hmm. or, or something of mm -hmm. that nature. It's not just like the good time thing. Right. It's also like a, a perpetuation of the culture. Yeah. Wow. which is extremely important. Yeah, well put. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your formative training when uh, Michael Carvin and Max Roach sort of entered your life. Um, mm -hmm. You talk a little bit about that experience and, and what they sort of instilled in you as a, as a professional drummer. That was an extension, you know, of the lessons that my father had taught. I think, 
I didn't know, like, actually before my father passed away, I wasn't on the fast track or any track to necessarily become a musician. I hadn't really played, like, regularly since I was in junior high school. So it had been, like, at least, you know, six years or so that I didn't really, really wasn't, you know, when I came home, Mm -hmm. you know, we had the studio. My father had instruments and Eric and Abraham, we all shared a studio yeah. together. My father gave them the keys to the studio and wow. let them, let them, you know, practice mm-hmm. and, and have that be like a clubhouse yeah. of, of sorts, you mm-hmm. know, which was really incredible. You're looking back on it now because it was a way, you know, and then we were all, you know, Eric's mother and Abraham's father and his parents, they were, they were all in contact, you know, so it was like a neighborhood. It was like a community, yeah. you know. So they knew what was happening. They yeah. were like, well, they're interested in the music. They have a space to play the music. Yeah. So they'd be down there, you know, mm-hmm. 14, 15, whatever, all nights, uh, all times of night. But yeah. they knew they were down there. Yeah. You know, so there was a certain safety involved in there. Or if you're doing anything, you're down here. Yeah. You know, it's right here in the building. Yeah. We're, we're, yeah. We understand. The people that yeah. we know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, you're protected. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, I was around the music when I came home. But I wasn't, I, I didn't, I had no understanding of it, like, in terms of, you know, just like whatever you know, the blues form, someone's called mm-hmm. the tune. I didn't know what tune. I didn't know anything about that. I just knew like how music sounded, how it made me feel, and mm-hmm. certain rhythms and stuff like that. So after my father passed away, I moved back to New York and I started hanging out a lot more with uh, Eric Abraham because they were they would be playing gigs at the um, in the city on the weekends when they weren't up at school. And so then from that, I started kind of got the bug. And then I started studying with Michael because Eric was studying with him, or he had studied with him. He okay. was going up to school now. So he was like, no, nah, you should get in touch with Michael. And I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. And he was very gracious, you know, because I was a broke, <laughs> a broke, a broke young adult. <laughs> like <laughs> most he, of us. Exactly, a broke young adult. And he was like, no, nah, come on, don't even worry about the money necessarily. And he, and he taught me some very important lessons. He's really a master teacher in the in the way that he allows the student to kind of be the best drummer or musician that he or she is going to Mm -hmm. be like he doesn't have a he has certain you know exercises and certain things that he you know kind of gives to everybody but the way that he goes about realizing what you you know, like, uh, it, it's just like, you know how every Id person has a certain idiosyncrasy mm-hmm. that makes them an individual. Yeah. Or like, mm-hmm. you know, so, and some people are trying to, they're not necessarily acknowledging that. Mm-hmm. They're trying to, and even if they're, if they're trying to fit whatever that is into somebody else's right. shoes, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, they, I know, and a lot of teachers who are good teachers they have a certain template and a certain format that like okay well this is what I teach yeah. and people go through that and mm-hmm. they sound good but mm-hmm. they sound like that teacher so they mean. become kind of it's like a cookie cutter kind yeah. of thing mm-hmm. now they've gotten you know good foundation right. of certain things but they might not necessarily know themselves mm-hmm. and I and that was another thing that Max really imparted to me he didn't necessarily give me any drum lessons but he put some money in my pocket when it came to he was like look you know <laughs> young blood come and set these drums up for me <laughs> well he didn't really need anybody to set the drums yeah, up you yeah, know come and set these cymbals up you know and by doing that I would be around him and go on the road and things like that with him and get to 
experience, you know, his uh, his acumen, his mm-hmm. his charm and his his wit, his intelligence, you know, uh firsthand. So that is and he and when I did ask him questions about music, I was like, "Okay, I'm playing. I'm starting to get into it." He was always he re, the thing that he reiterated most to me was, you know, individuality. Mm-hmm. He was like, "Don't try and sound like me or anybody else." He was mm-hmm. like, "You have something. Spe- everybody has something special into themselves, and if you just access that, that's going to take you a lot further than you trying to emulate anything that I do, or even though you know." And I didn't even still at that point, I didn't really understand how important he was in the scheme of you know contemporary music wow. you know and politics and yeah, all that yeah. <laughs> I didn't even un- I didn't know really yeah. I was I was a neophyte in that mm-hmm. sense so I, and that might have been good because I was so <laughs> I was so cavalier about some of my questions and like the way I was around him you know like a lot of young people are you get older and you start becoming more reserved because you you're around this greatness and you're like well I can't possibly yeah. not. and I was yeah. 20 years old I was like yeah back. I was yeah. yeah I didn't hold back I was saying all kind of, I can think of how <laughs> how embarrassing some of that stuff was now that I look back at it but he was like really gracious wow. with, with his with his time mm-hmm. um, but that was the lesson that that I really that always rings true for me from his from his mouth was like yeah, you know, concentrate on your, on your path. Everybody has to walk their own path. You can't walk in my behind my footsteps, yeah. you know, and expect to have the same type of results. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that might not necessarily happen. Right. So, and him and Michael, you know, and my father too. He didn't really, and that was the way that I was. I've been fortunate in that mm-hmm. in that sense. Mm-hmm. He didn't really get in the way of that either. Even even when he's when I wasn't really playing, it wasn't like. He was like, oh, you should be playing or I'm, I'm going to, you know, yeah. he laid back. He was like, in, I saw an interview with him. It was funny after I was in college and he was talking to this, uh, whoever was doing the interview. And he was asking him about his children. And I have a younger brother. And he was like, yeah, uh, the oldest one is a musician, which okay. was funny because I wasn't. He was like, yeah, he's a musician. He's a good drummer. He could. He could actually play if he wanted to, but he's not doing that right, right. now. He's going to school for mm-hmm. psychology. He was like, but he could, mm-hmm. which was funny because I was like, wow, he he had a, I didn't, you know, at that he particular heard it time, you did, yeah, basically. I didn't yeah. have any, yeah, I didn't think I didn't, I didn't think I'd be doing that. That's anymore. incredible. Wow.
If you're just tuning in to Jazz Life, you're catching my conversation with drummer Nasheed Waits. During the first half of our interview, you heard Art Taylor's Cuckoo and Fungi, I'll Remember April by Clifford Brown and Max Roach, and Nasheed's Shine featuring Logan Richardson on saxophone. Next, Nasheed charts his career as a sideman in this music, starting with saxophonist Antonio Hart. Let's talk about your time with Antonio Hart. He's mm-hmm. one of my favorite saxophonists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we were all... He's a few years older than me, but we were kind of all the same age. Yeah. You know, early 20s, mm-hmm. you know, maybe not even 25. When we first started playing in his band, so I might have been like 22 or something wow. like that. <laughs> 20, yeah, like 21, 22. Mm-hmm. And he was... That was like the last... Vestiges of the young lion. Thinking about that, (laughs) That like that was the that was when jazz became more tangible for me. You know, Mm -hmm. with Mark Carey, you guys, Abraham Burton, and like you guys seem so special to me, particularly because I felt like while I can I can touch you, you know, in terms of age. But you also had one foot sort of pointed in in the past. Like Mm -hmm. you knew, you know, who Max Roach was in in terms of influence, but you were also part of the hip hop generation at the same time. Yeah. It's always been fascinating. Right. Yeah. We grew up, you know, at the inception of the hip, you know, Sugar Hill Gang. I remember when all that shit came out. (laughs) Like, literally, we all had the record, you know, with the, 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 uh, the little, the, uh, Candy came. Yeah, thing. yeah. We, we <laughs> yeah, were like, a big yeah, bright blue. yeah, yeah. The bright blue <laughs> joint. Everybody had that joint. You know, we was like eight years old. So wow. it was, you know, and then everybody was out there. You know, so it was. We were a part of that. But then, you know, people like Arthur Taylor was also very mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when the the cultural part. Even though I didn't realize it then, but now you realize how fortunate you were to be and that might have been like the last era of that like where somebody like you know like Max and yeah. Art Taylor and all they would hang out yeah. like you know they would still they would still, now the, the musicians don't hang out nearly because the the, the yeah. um the scene doesn't necessarily facilitate that. Right. It doesn't lend itself anymore yeah. to it. I mean, you're still yeah. Fat Cat and Smalls, but, you know, the... Yeah, like, those might be the yeah. only kind of spots. Yeah. And we're not really the older cats right. yet. Right. And we're like... And I don't hang out nearly as much as I used to. You know, it's like the uh, that... Um, yeah, that, that, that portion of it has changed. So we had the opportunity to be around those, those, those greats. You know, Lewis Hayes, when it wasn't oh, necessarily... Oh, about I mean it was always about the music but it was like social situations too mm-hmm. and that was uh, that was very informative you know because a lot of times you have situations now where the younger people are, have missed that yeah. so they don't have that as a reference mm-hmm. like okay this music it's not like a um, it's, it doesn't only exist in the world of pedagogy right. so it's not like a, a just straight technical mm-hmm. like you're trying to perfect something there is no necessarily perfection there's always a search it's like a, the search is always present mm-hmm. but like in terms of you actually having 
grasping the knowledge and being like, okay, I've there's never that there's it's an infinite it's an infinite search, you know, and the reasons for those searches, you know, and and like the the connection to these different cultures and these different uh, histories, very important, you know. Um, really important you know it, it puts you in touch with people like Paul Robeson mm-hmm. and people like you know Frederick Douglass yeah. and people like uh, there's all these different you know mm-hmm. resound throughout the uh, the choruses of, of this of this music mm-hmm. and you start to realize that importance more and more as you get older or I have at least mm-hmm. you know and you start realizing how how important that is in terms of uh this this uh, this country that we live in, or the world, really, mm-hmm. because there's so much creativity and stuff that comes from this country, and then it starts getting like mutated into something else. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, and mm-hmm. in, in a lot of different ways. Yeah. So it's like it's our duty to to have a certain message um, put forth with what we put forth. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Talking about you as as Simon. Oh, man, you said with Antonio. That was yeah. that was that was that was my first. <laughs> I got sidetracked. That was that was the first. He was the first. Um, you know, like touring like band that I was oh, a part of. Okay. That was the first. I was the first recording. Who were the, the core members? So you, Antonio. It was, it was Antonio and myself, mm-hmm. and it kind of changed a little bit. I think the first first band was a quintet. Okay. And. Um, it was Dwayne Bruno was playing oh, bass, yeah. but Bruno was like hot then. Bruno wow. was like hot, so he was he was too busy yeah. to, to to commit to that. Yeah. And and he recommended Omir. Oh man, Avital yeah. and Omir had just yeah. come into town. Okay, so but it was Bruno and Omir, and I think it was Wanzi. Wanzi was the piano player. Wow. It was Wanzi, mm-hmm. and then. And then Wanzi was 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 busy too, so they didn't. But Carlos McKinney, okay. so it was like okay. Carlos and Omer and Darren Barrett was playing wow. trumpet. So it was like a quintet, wow. and then it kind of mutated into uh, after Car- oh, James Hurt. Mm-hmm. James Hurt came mm-hmm. in after Carlos and Tassili okay. Bond played played bass after uh, after Omer, and then that was and then it kind of and then it became a quartet too. yeah so I mean coming from this this thought you know like you said it was more of like a cavalier approach oh I'm just here and these things are happening to now being a part of the jazz scene the New York City jazz scene what was that transition like for you I mean it it, it wasn't really a transition because that was my life anyway I mean that was my father's community so I felt like I was kind of just a part of that and then you would start getting <laughs> you know calls from people that were you know, my father's contemporaries like mm-hmm. Hamia Blue it gave me one of my first gigs and Stanley Cowell you know called me for, and so you start getting you know getting accepted by these by these people who were you know yeah. people of uh, my father's um, generation along with you know playing with Antonio and, and that and that group and Abraham and Eric mm-hmm. and so that was that was uh, you know it started it kind of happened quick mm-hmm. you know I had to I felt like I had to educate myself fast because I didn't like I said I, yeah. I my 
knowledge of the music like I felt like everybody especially at that point in time had a lot had been doing a lot more than I had if musically speaking and had a, like a certain like they had been school for it and I hadn't been I was just kind of so I was start listening to right. as many records as like I like I came up to Biggie and all them cats a couple <laughs> years later I was in I was I was in the shed like listening to Lee Morgan and Blue Note yeah. records and stuff like that and trying to get that together yeah for a while because I was playing these gigs and I was trying to learn how to read music like I came in late I just started doing the gigs because I could kind of play yeah. and had a a decent feeling enough to get out of these gigs you never know it's just incredible to hear <laughs> you know so it was like I was playing catch up I was yeah. playing catch up for the first for the first few years yeah next Nasheed walks us through the origins and ultimate evolution of bandwagon So now let's talk about Bandwagon, the history with you, bassist Taurus Mateen and Jason Moran on piano. How did this group come together? I think the first, Jason's first album mm-hmm. was, was with Eric Harlan and Lonnie Plaxico and wow. Stefan, I think Stefan, Stefan Harris and Greg Osby. So we we did this shortly I think think in ninety nine or mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. And they uh Blue Note Records did a um had a uh like a uh what did you call it? Like a contrivance, like a, a band of their young talent mm-hmm. that was kinda like mentored by Greg. Oh. So Greg was the older one in the band, Osby. Yeah. And then Stefan was there, Mark Shem mm-hmm. was there, Jason, Taurus, and myself. Mm-hmm. So we did like about three month tour mm-hmm. with that band. And while we were doing that, we were also the rhythm section for Stefan. Oh, the Jason, Taurus, mm-hmm. and myself was mm-hmm. also the rhythm section for Stefan. And then we, and then we went and also did uh, like a couple of months with Greg. Jason had been playing with Greg already. Mm-hmm. And um and then uh Taurus and myself did did a couple of did like a couple of months. Uh and out of that the bandwagon was was born <laughs> because we were I mean, we, I think we've kind of refined refined our thing. Yeah, after it was almost some different iterations. I know Jason, you know, has a, a tremendous um, uh, touch on the the history, but I keep thinking of big mask or whatever. With oh, right, thing. right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, well, well, Jay Jay is taking his thing into like, uh, or our thing into a whole. Um, another visual place but it always and and that's why i mean i love him so much because it always has a a a very serious connection to Mm -hmm. to the uh you know to the to to the black culture really you know and it's in in all its glory Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and and it can be interpreted in a lot of different ways but i know the source and i know it's uh it's pure and it's in its uh, its integrity. Mm-hmm. So, and I've you know from Taurus uh, and Jason, yeah. you know, so they're they're some of the most creative 
brother and that's kind of how we kind of came together yeah. as as a group that's how jason um decided to to use that because we were on the road in that band and then we were playing in these other bands and it was becoming clear that we were kind of coming up on something that was very comfortable for us and uncomfortable for everybody else <laughs> so we were it's like an people, people were like yeah I don't know if you know what you're doing that's what it was <laughs> they were like I don't know if you know what you're doing do you really you know so we were and we were confident we were like no this is yeah this is this is this is happening you know we were like this is this this some this is important right for whatever it is right and i I think we've we've had an opportunity to you know to kind of smooth out some of the edges on that but at the same time still try to be as as wild as as uh, there's a certain type Mm -hmm. of like that that's that's important mm-hmm. to that particular, and really to all of us right. as as individuals. Whenever whatever we find ourselves in musically, we're always trying to. Of course, you know if you're playing a gig with Lou Donaldson, yeah. say for example, <laughs> then you're playing a certain way because that's what needs yeah. to happen for that gig. Yeah. But even within that, it's like there's a certain way of of kind of pushing, and we like to push. Yeah. You know, we like to push and pull in that group, and we're not afraid to you know to leap off the precipice mm-hmm. without looking down before mm-hmm. we're like we're going mm-hmm. we're going we're going that's we're going com- yeah, oh i'm sorry no 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 yeah that's fine. completely you describe perfectly how i what i felt experiencing you guys for the first time in detroit because it was almost like the feeling of being in a live recording session or something like you guys were completely aware of the audience but at the same time in your own space so it felt like very intimate but very experimental and just kind of went in all different directions but yet home was always near I don't know is yeah, yeah. that is it yeah. like that yeah, yeah. generally for you guys? Or? Yes, it is like that. Wow. It's like that. <laughs> it's like that all the time. Mm-hmm. The the trust is we've we've earned each other's trust and we 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 have it. Mm-hmm. You know, from from all these years of traveling yeah. the road together, you know, that really teaches you who people are when you're out there in these different countries mm-hmm. and you have to have each other's back people are, you know. Yeah. You you learn a lot about each other and and they're uh, you know truly truly brothers actually mm-hmm. you know I could I could say that uh, w- with uh, no hesitation mm-hmm. that uh, but you know it, it's like we we were afforded that opportunity and we uh, we I think we you took it kind of by the by the horns yeah. you know to a certain <laughs> certain degree you know that's youth to a, to a large people like yeah no, hitting you know hard <laughs> you know and that was our uh, that was our goal at, at times not really to be like you know a lot of times if you think you know jazz piano trio you think of a certain type of yeah. and there's nothing wrong with that right. mm-hmm. there's some amazing some of those yeah. trios are incredible yeah. you know Ahmad Jamal yeah. you know, Tommy Eddie Flanagan Bay. whoever yeah. I mean you know yeah. but uh, you know there were times where our goal was to have it be like we want to be like the John Coltrane quartet of jazz trios 
Hello. <laughs> you know, if you, if you want to talk about that, you know, to have it be like, to have it have that kind of energy where you're yeah. like, okay, wait a minute, this I feel like I'm levitating yeah. here or about to blow through this yeah. wall or something. So levitating. we, yeah, so we 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 are trying to access that energy. There, there be times where I've been on the stage. I've learned so much about energy manipulation uh, from these two gentlemen because there's been times when we've been on that bandstand and and I've been it's been like uh, that 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 uh, feeling of levitating has has definitely there's been times we've been challenging each other for it's like you know straight uh, combustible yeah. you know like you feel like it's about to be a fire starter out there there's about to be some flames shooting because that's the level that we're like oh no okay we're gonna try to go you know all the way yeah you know to those to those uh to those areas that we haven't explored anymore mm-hmm. we're trying to see that wow. and support each other in that mm-hmm. yeah
Up next, Nasheed discusses his latest release as a band leader between nothingness and infinity. Now I have in hand, hot off the, the press, <laughs> Nasheed Waits Equality. You talk about this this new album. Oh, I recognize all the players too. <laughs> Tell us about this project. It's a recording that was done a few years ago, actually, mm-hmm. but it's going to come out next month. Mm-hmm. Uh, a French label, uh, Laborie okay. uh, Jazz label. Mm-hmm. The uh, other musicians are. Darius Jones on the alto saxophone, mm-hmm. Arwan Ortiz Yay. on the piano, and Mark Elias on bass. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, the title of the uh, of the recording is "Between Nothingness and Infinity." This isn't your first no solo. No, no, project. it's the second one. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, so I guess with the work that you've done as a sideman, notably with with Jason Moran, mm-hmm. has that sort of taken you away from doing your your own? Well, I've never really had a desire to to be a quote unquote leader, okay. but but I was encouraged by by quite a few people mm-hmm. to do it. So the first time I did it, it was still like I was like it, it became almost more. It was almost more an answer to uh, a proliferation of the culture we are giving. Get that seems to be like a theme that we're getting back to. Because I was realizing that there were, you know, a traveling musician, like you said, a lot of mm-hmm. sideman gigs, mm-hmm. that there were a lot of um, opportunities and that were not being um, observed mm-hmm. by every faction of the community yeah. equally. Yeah. And I was like, wow, well... And then some of the music was seeing... It, it seemed like there was a, tour, a turn to more I don't know difficult or challenging music but it wasn't necessarily feeling amazing you know like people like Steve Coleman can do it you know what I'm saying but not everybody can can do that and have it be and have it be as meaningful as that so there was a lot I was experiencing a lot of that and I was like there seems to be a dearth of that spiritual content mm. for me mm. and that's like the tar baby is another yeah. group that mm-hmm. kind of came out of that same type of uh, thought process wow. we were like yeah there's a lot of you know there's a lot of um there's a lot of good musicians mm-hmm. out here and there's yeah. a lot of like amazing you know virtuosic playing almost in a way but I don't know if there's a lot of listening to each other on the bandstand mm-hmm. or, you know, I'm not hearing the group interplay necessarily that, that, that's, that's fulfilling for me as a listener. Yeah. You know, I'm not hearing a lot of melody necessarily. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing a lot of complex and intricate things happening. Right. And it could just be like, that's the evolution, yeah. you know, to the music. But yeah. I still feel like there was like a, some soul missing. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there are, or there are certain people... That came out of that, you know, came out, came from yeah. those people, and got a chance to be around the people like mm-hmm. on the tail, like right. Mark Carey talking mm-hmm. about Abraham yeah. and you know Antonio. Yeah. We connect to a certain to the music in a way that that doesn't necessarily it's not predicated on the technicality of right. it. It's predicated on the soul of mm-hmm. it. Like, how does it feel? How does yeah. it? What does it make you think about? Yeah. 
you know, does it reference back to you know something in your childhood? Mm-hmm. Or does it think make you think about something in your your future? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know. Mm-hmm. Things like that, as opposed to like, let me try to count this shit and not fuck up, and <laughs> let me try, <laughs> let me try, and you know, let me try to be as perfect as I mean, as we all are trying to do, yeah, really. Like this conceptual yeah, statement, but like, yeah, it was like, but for what though? It seemed yeah. like the statement for yeah. what? Like, what is the reasoning exactly. behind that? What is the impetus behind your right. your your um your presence mm-hmm. there? So, you know, I felt like okay, well, if if I have the opportunity, I should try and do that too. Because I mean, as even though I I never felt like, and I think one of the reasons that I never felt like I necessarily wanted to do the leader thing was because I was like, well, I'm playing in all these great bands mm-hmm. now. I've been I've been fortunate enough to at that time. I remember working with Andrew Hill and working with Jason. You know, we at the same time and working with Blue and. Stanley Cowell and these different people mm-hmm. so I was like well I don't you know I don't I don't feel like and people like Andrew Hill were always yeah. encouraging and Michael Carvin mm-hmm. and Billy Hart were always like yo start doing your own thing now yeah. and not necessarily in the ownership of it but in the sense that you can provide an opportunity yeah. not only for yourself but then for some other people as well yeah. to, and then they and then you know the um the type of connection you have mm-hmm. to to the to the music, and so then that's going to be a, a certain quality that's going to be mm-hmm. pr- presented, and and you know, mm-hmm. in that sense. So, yeah, I felt that it was kind of important to do that. You know, you start, and I think sometimes nowadays people start jumping in there a little early. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay, you're talented. And right. there's some people where that, that's, that's not the case. Like, yeah. they should be doing that. Right. You know, like, they have something to say. Mm-hmm. They're amazing composers. Yeah. And, yeah. and they have, uh, you know, they have a concept and they have a certain connection. There's something special. Mm-hmm. Great. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of people where, but like I said, the, the, it's has changed. Like, the, the certain type of apprenticeship that used to be compulsory to being able to, to attain a certain position mm-hmm. like that those opportunities aren't necessarily there anymore. Like the Art wow. Blakey's aren't yep. here anymore. Yeah. You know, the Miles Davis's, you know, yeah. Hart yeah. Silver, you know, these people where you would cut your teeth and get involved mm-hmm. in that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jackie McLean, that was how Jackie McLean, you know, he had Eric in his band for, yeah. for almost, you know, 15 years or mm-hmm. so. So, you know, Arthur Taylor, Abraham was in his mm-hmm. band. I mean, you know, you come through that, yeah. through that type of uh, understanding, you have a different kind of connection to the music than if you just kind of come up by yourself right. and you may be talented. It's yeah. like, there's just a different type of, it's a, you can't, you can't replicate that in, in the school in any other way. Yeah. You you can only attain that on the bandstand yeah. and on the road with yeah. those people. That's, that's the only way that mm-hmm. you, that you get that. And that's the way that it was done up until now. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's just so you know? great. Cause you, you touched on that very subject during the drummers clinic in Detroit about the role of music education and, and sort of what it's become mm-hmm. now that, you know, most kids that are, are coming into the jazz scene or coming straight out of the conservatory and the university and not sort of having like the experience that maybe you had or Abraham Burton had or Mark Carey had who's like been surrounded by musicians yeah and if yeah. you talk a little bit about then does that does that leave like a void in in the music or or yeah yeah I mean yeah it 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 does but 
at the same time, if you kind of focus on that in and of itself, it can have a, like a bitterness effect or something like that, you know, and you can't be one of those people like talking about the days going by, like, oh, I remember when, you know, it's like, but because because it becomes it's not useful right, right. <laughs> you know yeah. it's like nothing nothing unless anything positive or any growth is yeah. coming after is, is coming out of it mm-hmm. if it's like okay that's going to um manifest itself into some activity right. then cool mm-hmm. but uh, most of the times that's just like i remember when and why are people but ain't nothing happening <laughs> you know you're just kind of you're just complaining yeah basically you know about <laughs> about what was yeah. and how it's not like that anymore yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, things change, yeah. you know, so yeah. it's like we have to kind of embrace the change yeah. or and also find a way to to let people hear something something else as well. Okay. You know, not even something else, but just there's all kinds of mm-hmm. all, all kinds, you know. I, I just want to be one of those people who <laughs> who who presents the um who presents who presents something that's true to me and my experiences mm-hmm. and also but not and not in a not in the ownership kind of way like I, I don't have like that proprietary kind of thing on mm-hmm. the music you know it's 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 out there right. really you know so there's no ownership or anything like that I think that's kind of the whether people realize it or not that that becomes kind of the the element that that can prevent the the uh, the music from growing mm. you know it's like trying to to be like and the, the me my yeah. concept you yeah. know and my because then yeah. it's like then it becomes like it can't go anywhere after that you know your right. vision is only but but so high the yeah. ceiling it needs to it needs some contributions from it from other places in order for it to really be fertile mm-hmm. and to uh encourage some yeah. some growth yeah you know you never know what direction it's it's gonna go that's fascinating because like thinking about you know just one of the things that constantly comes up whenever i start talking about black music and the history of black music is is sort of you know retaining the rights to it and and maybe if sort of that preservation had been done sooner in terms of the the ownership and the the copyright to to sort of protect us for the next generations maybe it wouldn't be such a territorial kind of thing now because while i do applaud that you know this next generation is is sort of protecting themselves in terms of um the business side of it but that's almost bleeding into the the artistry the creative yeah. yeah the creativity yes yeah, like sense. that fear is preventing people from you know stepping out mm-hmm. there i mean the, the, that was the 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 attraction to the quote-unquote right. jazz yeah musician yeah. and and that word is that that word and the, and the fact that that word has is, is come under um attack mm-hmm. because and and rightly so because i mean my father never really liked it. i remember max always saying yeah jazz is a four-letter word wow. because every time i use it the money goes down <laughs> every I time that. i use that word jazz the money starts going down <laughs> and now i understand what he's talking about you yeah. know you present a project and you mm-hmm. say jazz then there's a certain stigma and yeah. stuff that comes along with it wow. deserved or not right yeah. so you know there's like that fear thing that comes into play well if you do this then you're not gonna get this or yeah. if I want to bring and it's like I didn't you know there was like a renegade quality mm. to all those people regardless of what kind of 
you know how you deemed whatever the music is yeah. or whatever like it was straight hustlers and yeah. gangsters and that was the thing that gave the music exactly. the edge and they were all together with the intellectuals right. and the writers mm-hmm. and the, you know the, the, the debutantes and everybody <laughs> was hanging out together and that that's what made the um, the music so rich because it was drawing from all these diverse sources mm-hmm. and now it's it seems like i mean it's still present yeah. but like that element of danger yeah. is, is not quite it's sanitized that, yeah yeah exactly it's like well, what's going on i didn't think you know it's like you, if you if you didn't if you didn't look around you think you were like you know at a I don't know, you know, yeah. computer pro. They're probably having a lot more fun than the cats on the road, <laughs> you know. But um, yeah, that there's a certain renegade quality and like you know, the, mm-hmm. you know, the rebel, you know, risk taking quality yeah. that that you you look and you're like, I don't know if, if that's present necessarily. I don't right. hear it, right? And that's something that's that's something that's important <laughs> for for me. In the final half of our interview, you heard Antonio Hart's Ama Tu Sonrisa, Bandwagon's live version of Body and Soul, and Hesitation and Korean Bounce off of Nasheed's latest equality release between Nothingness and Infinity. If you're in New York City, catch Nasheed with Jason Moran's Bandwagon this week at the Village Vanguard. To learn more about Nasheed and when he's playing in a city near you, visit nasheedwaits.com. You can also find updates on my Jazz Life page and be sure to listen via iTunes and Stitcher. Many thanks to Nasheed for such an incredible show today and thanks to all of you out there for listening. Tune in to the next Jazz Life, Sundays at 3 p.m., only on Bonfire Radio. I'm your host, Shannon J. Effinger. <laughs>